does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. You're listening to the best of Kevin Inquiry on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. 8 o'clock hours underway on a gorgeous Monday in Indianapolis. How are you? My name is Jake Query. Kevin Bowen, the other voice you hear on this program. Mark Dykton flying the ship for us. It is the amazingly outside-the-box named Kevin Inquiry program here on 93.5, 107.5. The Fan. Joining us now on the Payless Slickers Hotline. You hear, hear him on, excuse me, PGA Golf Radio. He, of course, also will be hosting on this radio station today from noon until 3 with Jimmy Cook. Will Haskett joins us. And, Will, we were talking about this earlier. You know, I think there were two ways to look at yesterday. One would be, I don't know if I would call it necessarily, I think Kevin disagreed with me a little bit here. I wouldn't say it was a collapse by Brooks Kepka as much as more just an incredibly ill-timed inconsistency. But I thought John Rahm was just incredibly consistent down the stretch of, as Jim Nance called it, a marathon day, um, and obviously a very deserved champion yesterday. Yeah, John Rahm did what John Rahm does. I mean, he's been the best player in the world this year up until the last three or four weeks. He didn't really have his best stuff over the last month, but had sort of played with a chip on his shoulder at the beginning of the calendar year and and found that chip again. I mean, four putts the first holy plays on Thursday, you know, is two over out of the gate and then without a doubt had the worst draw of the field in terms of the weather. I mean, he he was with that group that, you know, had to kind of fight through it on Friday, start and stop and then restart again and play the most golf on Saturday and I think was at a disadvantage there, but just does what he does. Like John Rahm's not going to shoot a lot of 60s and 61s. He just shoots a crap ton of 66s and does them, you know, in four straight rounds you know, in PGA Tour events and just continue to show that consistency, that grind, hit shots, is never really out of it, has all the tools in the bag. He's a 14-club player. I can go down the line of all sorts of, you know, golf idiosms there to describe him. But, yeah, he got some help. I think, you know, Brooks Kepka hadn't lost a major when leading after 54 holes, and he did yesterday and just didn't look himself. Couldn't find fairways, which is that's hard to do. It's, it's hard to miss a lot of fairways on that golf course. He missed a lot of fairways didn't look good around the greens and just looked off for the first time all week. And that made things a little bit easier for John uh, down the stretch because there were so many birdie opportunities on the back. All he had to do was keep the ball in play, and he was going to win that golf tournament. Well, it's interesting. We were talking a little bit earlier, and I shared the Tim Mickelson story. You know, Phil's brother, John Rahm's college coach, who quit at Arizona State to become John's caddy initially out of college. I thought that was some irony when you look at where Phil finished yesterday. But when you think about Rahm, you know, here's this you know bit of a fiery Spaniard. You know, certainly wears his emotions, not afraid to complain about a bad shot. He has the look of a guy that just you know hits at 350. But in a way, he's just so steady in all facets of his game. And I, I find that to be kind of the methodical, borderline, boring approach to how he plays golf of it's a bit robotic-like, even though he has some aspects to him, again, from his emotion and just from his size, that you would think he doesn't play the game in the style that he does, if that makes sense. Yeah, we gravitate towards players that have what I always refer to as like a superpower. So Rory mm-hmm. McIlroy might be the greatest driver of the golf ball ever. I mean, equipment or no equipment, like what he does off the tee is 
is amazing. Jordan Spieth, generational short game player of the last 10 years. I mean, what he can do around the greens and then sometimes on the greens is incredible. And John's numbers speak to the fact that he's an elite driver of the golf ball. I think he's top five on tour right now in, in driving. He's top 10 typically every year in strokes gained approach, which is how we measure guys in terms of iron play. But he never gets the accolades that, say, a Colin Morikawa does for how good his irons is because he's the guy that's typically number one or Justin Thomas or somebody like that. But here's John Rahm, who's ranked in the top 20 in probably all of those statistical categories I just mentioned. But because he doesn't do one at some sort of textbook level, you know, we don't we don't put all around greatness on a pedestal sometimes the way we put individual skill on a pedestal because it's easier to sort of look at that. And I think that's the way I kind of uh, I look at it with John Rahm is he's you know on the short list and is probably leading the short list of the best all around player in golf. And to a nuanced golf fan, you know, that doesn't, it's not as sexy, right? But I mean, if, if it's somebody who's just coming into golf, they're like, well, that makes sense. Of course, he's the best all around player. It's just, you don't get to say about one thing. You know, it's harder to talk about John Rahm in crazy superlatives because there are other guys that maybe do one particular skill a little bit better than him. But when it comes to everything, when it comes to winning, especially now at the last, couple of years, John Rahm's the best. Okay, Will Haskett is with us. You're going to hear him from noon to three today. He's going to go host alongside Jimmy Cook, PJ Tour Radio for Will. Um, the Mickelson story, I mean, 65 yesterday, it's the highest finish ever in a Masters by someone over the age of 50. I believe it tied the low round he's ever had yep. at Augusta National. I thought a wild stat that I saw yesterday that really put it into, into perspective what Phil did Imagine John Rahm finishing second at the 2047 Masters. That's what yeah. Phil Mickelson just did. I am a na- of natural Phil hater, Will. I can't ignore that story. That is absolutely incredible what he just did because this is a guy that was playing uh, horrific golf on the Live Golf Tour. Terrible golf. I mean, now, again, now this is a golf course where experience truly matters. He's built for that place. To be a left-handed player is an advantage around Augusta National. All of the knowledge that he has, you know, it's the reason why Fred Couples makes the cut at 63 years old also this week. is you know Smaller field, you know, course fit, course history, understanding those greens matter. But then for him to go out and shoot the round of the day on Sunday to match his career low there, it was phenomenal for him to turn it back. And I've witnessed two of probably the best major performances of my lifetime from Phil Mickelson in the last two years. I mean, what he did to win the PGA Championship two years ago, they should write books about it. I mean, there's and that's a different conversation for a different day. But he taught us so much about mental strength and psychology that week and his approach to try and beat guys younger than him and arguably better than him to win a major championship past the age of 50. We should be celebrating these two performances from Phil, but there's so much black cloud around the last 24 months or so for him, or less than that, you know, 18 months in his world. It, it's just so strange. You know, he didn't do a one-on-one with Amanda Balionis yesterday after the round. He did sit down in the media room and talk to some folks, so there's some sound out there, but he was you know, he declined a lot of media access this past week. Uh, it's It was good to see him smile. Those patrons there are always going to give respectful applause to every golfer every year that they play. It's, it's not a place where you're going to hear the crowd really getting on players. So it's a safe space for them. Uh, but I hate the fact that we have to almost put an asterisk by his PGA Championship win and then this week, because not an asterisk in the record books, but just sort of an asterisk in our minds because of everything else. I mean, it's, it's really crazy because 
it should be getting more attention than it gets, but there's just so much scar tissue around the last 18 months with Phil Mickelson that I just don't think we will respect it as much as it probably should be because it was a remarkable performance. There's no doubt about that. It's so funny to me how, I mean, I'll just throw a number out, 15 years ago, you know, Tiger Woods was like the, this elite champion, but like had this stoic, impermeable, almost dislike about him because of this perceived arrogance. And Phil Mickelson was like the kind of the happy guy next door, you know, antithesis of that. And that's completely flipped. You know, now Phil Mickelson's the guy nobody likes, and Tiger Woods is the one that's like this sympathetic character that people are like, oh, he's a nice guy. You know what I mean? Like, Maybe that's a little extreme, but it seems like the two roles have reversed. But, Will, I'm curious. I wanted your input on this. The weather at Augusta, with with everything that took place on Saturday, did that in any way, shape, or form slow down the course and bring the course into the game of of, of a name or two that might have finished in the top 10, top 12, where it was actually to their advantage how the course might have changed and come to them a little bit? You know, I mean, given how the leaderboard played out, probably not, Jake. I mean, I thought that the golf course really responded nicely yesterday. I mean, it was always going to be soft in the fairways, but I thought the greens had just a, a little bit of fire in them given how much rain they took on Saturday. It was really more just a mental battle. I mean, to be wearing three layers and to just take an absolute beating from the elements on Saturday, it was really going to kind of boil down to, you know, who could play. I, I think the worst, I would say the best worst weather player is Matt Fitzpatrick, and he sort of rose to the top of it. I mean, he just has a, an ability to grind through it and just sort of lends itself to a guy that just grinds on every shot. And you saw him make a little bit of a run up the board on Saturday in the worst of those conditions. So if there was one guy that maybe you had an edge there. But, you know, I, I knew it was going to be bad conditions for a guy like Sam Bennett because now he's fighting a bunch of other different things, and not only with the – the spotlight on him as being an amateur who, you know, had a chance and was in contention in the final group going into the weekend. But and no, I don't I look, the best players in the world who were playing the best sort of found their way near the top of that leaderboard when it was all said and done. And that's kind of what the Masters has given us over the last decade is you really can't fake it showing up and then fake it all the way to the finish line. So really with the exception of Phil Mickelson finding form, but again doing it as somebody who you expect to always play well in that golf course. I didn't really think the weather impacted the final result as much as it did just make a just a miserable Saturday for people to play golf. I mean, that was that was hard to watch. I broadcast in a lot of bad conditions, and that one was one of the worst for people to have to walk around and try and play golf in on Saturday. It was like stunning to walk outside here Saturday and be like, wait, why is this weather happening in central Indiana? And that's what we're seeing yeah. uh, down in Augusta, Georgia. Again, Will Haskett with us. You're going to hear him from noon to 3 today. He'll be in with Jimmy Cook. Uh, Will, on the live golf front, Patrick Reed, Phil Mickelson, Brooks Kepka all finish in the top four. Um, I think they were the only three in the top 16 from live, but still three in the top four. I did not expect at the start of the week. How would you grade the week for the live golfers? Uh, you know, individually speaking, I think you have to look at it on a case by case basis. I mean, I thought Brooks Kepka was on the short list of guys that could win that golf tournament because he showed some fire, he showed some health, and we know what he can do in majors. Uh, you know, it has not been, I would say, great form from either Patrick Reed or Phil Mickelson. But again, they've got kind of they've got course equity. So I wasn't surprised to see guys at the top. I mean, you had 18 live players at the beginning of the week in an 87 man field with what a dozen plus of those guys being you know past champions over the age of 50 and a whole bunch of amateurs. So the law of averages sort of dictated that you were going to have some guys near the top. It, no matter how you want to frame it, it was either a good or a bad week for live 
depending on which side of the fence you sit on. And I, there's been a lot of really good clickbait headlines from some major golf publications out there to talk about it one way or the other when it's all said and done. And I don't think it matters. I think it's, I think it's all noise at this point. Um, the way I measured is the simple fact that it was a, it was a great tournament with incredible drama from a variety of different places. And the only way we can ever see something like that happen again is three other tournaments the rest of the year. That's it. The only time the rest of the year we're ever going to see Brooks and Phil and Patrick Reed and anybody else from Live playing in the same field as John Rahm, Scotty Scheffler, Jordan Spieth, and everybody. And that's just a loss for everybody. That's a loss for golf fans. That's a loss for sports fans. I don't know. I don't know what the future of Live is. If they want to keep spending money, they can. And maybe this week bolsters them to you know to open up the checkbook and maybe buy a few more players this year. There was some scuttlebutt that they you know were trying to pinch pennies a little bit because they would, haven't been happy with the return on their investment. But if this is enough to say, hey, let's go, let's push, let's figure it out, then you know maybe this war keeps going. And, and keep in mind, the week started with a really bad court. Uh, two bad court cases on Liv's behalf. They lost a court battle in Europe, and they also got a real scolding from a judge out in California in their lawsuits against the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour. So it got off to a bad week in court, but it ended up in a really good way in on the golf course. But I'm to the point now where, as someone who covers golf for a living, it's a loss right now because we're going to a designated event this week at Hilton Head as the PGA Tour sort of adjusted it. So all the best players in the PGA Tour are playing again this week, sort of capitalizing on the run at the Masters, but Brooks won't be there. Phil won't be there um, because of this split, and it's just unfortunate. Your favorite non-Rom Phil storyline from this Masters? Um, boy, that's a great question. I, the, the, everybody getting to know Sam Bennett was was really cool. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't like how I feel it bad he didn't get up. top twelve. Well, yeah, top twelve, and you know he's going to turn professional here in a couple of you know a couple of months or you know a month and a half after the NCAA championships are over with. And it would have been really cool to know that you've got to start at Augusta next year as a pro. Top twelve would have been that. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a little bit of a deflating one for him. But for everybody to get to know his story and get that tattoo on TV and understand what he went through with his dad and just sort of see the fire that he played with. I know when I came on last week, I was. I was bullish on Gordon Sargent, whose short game was abysmal last week, and Sam Bennett was a guy that can just will the ball in the hole. So I love just sort of seeing his guts and flair kind of out there for everybody to see. Hey, Will, which which aspect of golf, actually for either one of you guys, but I'm not talking about for the weekend Warriors, but for, at the professional level, do you find that when guys get into, when they get the equivalent of golf yips, right? So like, you know, in baseball, you see it. Steve Sachs couldn't throw the first for a season. Or guys go into a hitting slump. In golf, oftentimes you have guys either that, you know, one of three things. They're unbelievable drivers, John Daly. They're unbelievable approach guys with their second shot. Or they're, they're great short game putters. Which one is most prone to psychological slumps? Uh, the putter. I mean, whenever anybody loses it inside of five feet, that's yeah. the that's the well. But but I mean, do you see a guy that's like a master at the short game? Does he have does he have a psychological slump more than players at other area of other strengths? Is what I'm getting at. Um, I mean, the putter is the most inconsistent club in everybody's bag. But I I, I guess you would say the best putters in the world when they lose it, it's. It's kind of crazy to see because how can something that's that simple, you know, making five footers, you know, how when you lose that ability 
to take the putter back. I think that's the one that we sort of gravitate gravitate to more than guys that have the full driver yips. I mean, we've seen guys in recent past who can't take the club back, who literally stand on the tee and, and freeze for 15, 20 seconds, like best players in the world, and they can't figure out how to take it back because it's so paralyzed by bad swing thoughts. But, no, there's nothing worse than, you know, watching a guy shove a three-footer and realize he's going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. So that, to me, is probably the most compelling mental breakdown. And Jordan Spieth battled that. I mean, Jordan, I don't think we've still fully gotten back to 100% believing every three-footer that Jordan Spieth strikes these days. Will Zalatoris certainly would fall into oh, that God. group, too. Oh, I'm a present-day guy that, Ooh. boy, I start sweating immediately when he has a three-footer. All right, Will, last one. Um, waited till the end to get a Tiger question in. The PGA Championship is next. It's in New York next month. I would say the weather could be a bit dicey. Um, as weird as it sounds, I think Mother Nature is a huge thing for Tiger at this yep. point in his career. So I would like to see him skip the PGA, potentially give it a go at the U.S. Open in L.A. in June, and then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the British Open, is that Liverpool where Tiger won? Yes. Okay, so maybe maybe give it a go there. Um, how do you view the rest of uh, Tiger's 2023 season? Yeah, I mean, obviously all health dependent. I mean, the plantar fasciitis really you know dug in and got him on Saturday. And yeah, I guess extended weather forecast for Rochester is what we'll be looking at to see if he wants to play the PGA. Um, I think he had hopes of being able to play even more than just the majors. So if, does he make an appearance at Memorial if his body is a go in May before the U.S. Open? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's there's hope for all of that. But you know, I was I was thinking about you, Kevin, last week after I came on and I was watching all the press conferences. Um, Tiger warmed up on Thursday and talked last week like a man who knows that I mean, I, even his hopes of playing in these tournaments seem like it's sort of dashing right now. Yeah, agreed. In terms of it, and he's and he still got it out making the cut, which is incredible. So, I'm going to say right now it's probably fifty fifty that he tees it up next month. Um, but I, you know, two weeks out when we look at the weather, if it's going to be you know mid fifties and a chance of rain every day, and that place is going to be you know soft with all of that grass on that golf course. I'd say that you know, then I'd probably lean towards not playing. But I, I think right now his goal is to play at least in all the majors, and if he can just get that foot to cooperate a little bit. But did you see Jason Day's comment? I don't know if Jason Day was supposed to let the cat out of the bag. Yeah, can you share that? That was wild. Holy cow! So they're talking to him after the round about just you know the perspective of Tiger and feeling bad for him, and obviously Jason Day has had his own injuries, and Day just kind of lets it slip that Tiger told him that last year at the PGA Championship, one of the screws that's holding his right leg together actually punctured through his skin. And that's what sort of forced the withdrawal. So he was playing with the, Oh, I mean, Holy cow. I mean, you think about, I was calling every single shot last year at the PGA championship, watching him gut it out in absolute agony. So again, he, he would not indicate he smiled last week and said, I'm not going to tell you how much hardware is in my right leg, but some of that hardware came a little bit loose last year at the PGA championship, at least according to Jason day yesterday. Um, so we kind of know what Tiger's dealing with when he's hobbled around out there and things slip a little bit on him. You know, in 20, what did you say? For John Rahm to do what Phil Mickelson did yesterday, it'll be the 20, what did you say, like 47 I thought Masters? I saw, uh, it was 2047, yeah. yeah. So you do realize, Will, in the 2047 Masters, you're going to be, I mean, I'm going to be long gone, but you're, you're going to be doing a show with Kevin and Kevin's going to say, now let's talk about Tiger. Do you think that he's, I mean, at yes. 76, does he have a shot here? How many PGAs is he going to get this year? 
It's going to be, they you are. guys, people will, will wonder that for 30 years. It'll be ceremonial tee shot, Tiger. That'll be Tiger and Phil doing the ceremonial tee shots on <laughs> Thursday morning at Augusta. I mean, can you imagine? I'm just wondering, Jack didn't look his best. Gary's still going. I don't know who our bridge ceremonial tee shot guys are. I mean, we got Tom Watson out there right now, but you've got to have at least a there? little bridge before. How about I mean, Fuzzy? Yeah, What's Fuzzy doing? Yeah, Fuzzy could do it. I guess couples. I Crenshaw. mean, whenever Fred, whenever Fred hangs it up, Ben will do it. Yeah, that's a, those, are, those are good ones. Ben Crenshaw, and then probably into the Freddie generation, and then down to Phil and Tiger eventually. I think. Yeah, the old punctured screw through the skin, boy. I, you know, I've definitely hard to play golf with. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think. You know, when I put Max's crib together a few months ago, I'm like, you know what? That screw doesn't look like it's totally correct, but I can't imagine. One uh, jutting out of the skin. Um, yeah, he needs to not play in the PGA Championship. Will, have enjoyed the conversations last week and again today. We'll be listening noon to three. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we think. Whether it's audiobooks or all time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. We start our mornings relatively early. Our next guest, Deontay Lee, draft analyst for The Athletic. This is the second time we've had him on, and I am amazed that he continues to do this in a live setting because where he is right now, I believe it is 6.42 in the morning. Deontay, uh, I wish I had as much individual drive as you do on a Monday. Thank you for the time today. Oh, man, no problem at all. I, I would say it definitely helps being a father to a young kid. You know, my, my sleep schedule is as fickle as it can be to begin with, so it's no problem. I'm usually up around this time trying to get prepped for the day, so I'm glad to be on with you guys talking ball. Well, it means a lot that you've decided to do it with us. Um, this time of year, I almost think the draft takes become a bit nauseating, to be totally honest with you. So I know you're not maybe a huge social media guy, but of all kind of the draft groupthink thoughts that you've seen maybe gain traction here as of late, what's the one draft stereotype, if you will, that you're like, where is that coming from? Um, you know, it, it's hard. This class is really fascinating for that. Um, because I do think that because there's been such a clear understanding, I think on who the best guys are in this class, like you said, the, the draft takes this year can kind of get stale. I think they definitely got stale a bit faster than you would see in other classes. I would say the one that bothers me the most is that I'm consistently seeing and, and hearing from people who have been in the media for longer than me that I'll speak to on the side that they have a legitimate expectation that Will Anderson is going to fall. And I, I just don't know what that's founded in at, at any point in, in Will Anderson's college career based on how he performed, you know, in the athletic testing, um, you know, what we hear about him and his work ethic. So that that is the one thing I have a really hard time wrapping my head around is that there seems to be this almost kind of completely ex- expect complete expectation that on draft day, Will Anderson is going to slip past what we might um, assume his draft value to be. Deontay, I'm going to ask you the question that I've asked several people, and I'm I'm curious the various answers. Actually, there are four quarterbacks. You know, obviously in Indianapolis, we're looking at quarterback heavily, right? I mean, there are four quarterbacks: Anthony Richardson, Will Levis, Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, that are all thought to be 
you know, possibly the first four picks or four of the top right. five or six picks. Do you believe that that is because this is a year where there are four quarterbacks who are so good that they are worthy of being top ten picks? Or is it because there are four teams drafting in the top ten that are in desperate need of quarterback? I think that the value gets inflated by the latter. I think that it's the need for quarterback at the top of the draft that I think motivates what we see in terms of the inflation or the expectation that these guys are all going to go top four or top five or whatever the case may be. So I would say it has a lot it has a lot more to do with the teams than I think the players. That's not to say that I don't believe that any of the players could be top 15, top 10 picks in their own right, but when you're looking at a draft board that happens to have a bunch of teams in the top 10 and we already saw a trade to number one overall for a team that we know needs a quarterback, that I think speaks to the way that teams move with their particular franchise needs more than it is how we're evaluating the players. And Deontay Lee is with us, NFL draft analyst for The Athletic. He's here on the Payless Liquors hotline. You mentioned Will Anderson earlier, and let's just like write out this hypothetical a little bit. Let's say a team trades up to Arizona uh, and takes a quarterback. Let's say it's Anthony Richardson, and the Colts are sitting there at four, and it's Will Levis and Will Anderson both on the board. If you're Chris Ballard, you go Anderson or you go Levis? Oh, it's rough. It's rough for me because now we're having a conversation about how you want to build your franchise, right? And I think that kind of um, layered in that is what is the best way to get your franchise back to contention? Is it to get the quarterback that you believe can be a star and then build everything around him or try to have the best roster possible to drop a quarterback into? Um, So I think for Indy and where their roster is at or for where I think that their franchise is looking at, I would probably go Levis because it's been such a headache on the carousel for veteran quarterbacks and striking out with those guys because of age or because of quality of play or a combination of both. I I know if I were Chris Ballard, I would have the exact same mentality that he's had this offseason, which is that I just want to have a young guy here that's cost-controlled for four to five years, if not longer. We'll try to develop this thing around him, and we've got a young OC to develop with him as well, or a young head coach that was an offensive coordinator to develop with him as well. That would be the way I'd be looking at it. Okay, and then if we want to, I guess, go to, all right, what if Levis and Richardson are both on the board? Yeah, I don't know if you think this way, but it seems like you know maybe there's a tier of Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud, and then the next tier is Levis and Richardson. The question I was throwing out late last week was, I think you got to find out what flaws the guys have and then ask yourself, are those flaws teachable? Right. Would you say Levis's flaws are more teachable or would you say Richardson's flaws are more teachable? Um, I would say Richardson because I, I think that what you're trying to fix, quote-unquote, with Richardson is really just a matter of um, slowing his process down with moving in the pocket and, and preparing himself to throw the ball. You know, I, I think that with Levis, you know, when you look at how he manages the pocket and the amount of contact that he's taken over the last couple of years, particularly last year when he was already hurt, and you could tell that the offense was asking him not to run as much to escape from pressure, the fact that he had a tough time finding answers for himself within that offense is really concerning for me. I don't think those same concerns exist when you're talking about, you know, six four two thirty, you know, um, uh, Anthony Richardson, and that's not to say that Will Levis is small or weak, but I think that you see the ways in which they handle pressure, they handle the bodies that are next to them, how they work their way around the pocket. I, I would be much more comfortable 
trying to quote unquote fix the issues that you see in Richardson than hoping that you get 2021 Will Levis for the entirety of his pro career. You have two GMs that are looking at this draft, Deontay Lee, and each of them has a very specific need of player you know, position. Uh, the one that's going to be the happiest because this draft is absolutely loaded at his position of need is the guy that is looking for what position and the guy that is the most screwed because this one just doesn't offer a lot for him is the guy looking for what position? Ooh, I would say I would say there's a two-way tie for the most loaded position in this class. I would say it's tight end and corner. So if you're in need of a tight end that can work those intermediate areas, that can threaten defenses up the seam, you know, that you can kind of build into being, you know, a good inline blocker and maybe a guy you can flex out or get in one-on-one coverage the way that we've seen the Chiefs do with Travis Kelsey. Um, I think that this is a good class for that. And I think that there is a high potential that we end up with three to four franchise number one level corners out of this class too. I think that if you're looking for interior offensive linemen that can maybe develop in the perennial all pros or pro bowl talents i think that this is going to be a difficult draft for that and this is maybe the lightest linebacker class i've ever evaluated um you know in my time working in the media so i would say interior offensive line and linebacker if you're looking for those guys to fix the issues that you have with their franchise this is not the year to solve it in the draft well, some good and bad there for the Colts the Colts certainly have a need at corner massive need at corner that second round pick in my opinion could come in here and, and start from day one. Deontay, I want to go back to Anthony Richardson for a second. And again, Anthony Richard, <laughs> Deontay Lee is with us here on the uh, Payless Liquors Hotline, covers the NFL Draft for The Athletic. You know, you see Anthony Richardson's uh, accuracy number from last year. The completion percentage is, is ugly. But, you know, you probably, or we probably should, and I raise my hand, I probably should put some context around that number. It's like a 54% completion percentage. But when you dive into like drops, catchable balls, there's a lot of people out there that say it's a little bit num- better for Anthony Richardson than it looks on paper with that completion percentage. What have you, have you observed from Anthony Richardson when it comes to the accuracy? Um, I think the first thing you have to ask when you're looking at completion percentage is what kind of throws he's being asked to make um, when he's starting, you know, in his starts. I think that really, if you have questions of him, it's going to be is what we saw in the limited amount of film really where he stands right now, or is this something that was progressing? You know, we just didn't get enough time to see it through the way that you see a guy who a CJ Stroud or a Bryce Young who gets two, three years as a starter to really kind of iron out the kinks in their game. I think with Richardson, A, they were trying to throw the ball deep, or he was looking to throw the ball deep. They were a much more vertical offense, and you see some of these like RPO-heavy offenses over the last half decade to decade in the, uh, in the college football game. So that's a starter. You're already talking about higher variance on completions, which has an effect on it. Um, Number two, I would say in terms of skill position talent, if we're comparing Ohio State, which maybe has had like six or seven first-rounders on the roster at a given time playing wide receiver and tight end over the last couple of years and and offensive line, and you look at Alabama, we know the machine that they've been with the receivers that they put in the NFL – um, and what we usually expect of their offensive line over the years, this past year notwithstanding. And then you look at what Florida is dealing with. I mean, if you even if you had given Anthony Richardson, I think the supporting cast that Will Levis had in 2021 uh, with uh, with Wondell Robinson, with having um, Liam Cohen and a better you know veteran offensive line, I, and I think that his offensive line at Florida was fine. I just think that the supporting cast they were 
is something that has to be contextualized in his evaluation. Um, and with the Colts, I think that that's particularly interesting given Shane Steichen's time with Jalen Hurts, you know, because really, it really wasn't all that different when you're looking at Jalen Hurts um, as a quarterback, you know, coming from Alabama and Oklahoma. He was most comfortable throwing the ball vertically, wasn't the greatest in the intermediate areas, or working in the middle of the field, had decent pocket feel, but maybe left it a little bit early. Um, but you figure that if you use his legs properly, you can buy him some time to develop. And, that, and that's what we saw in 2022. So if you're NBA and you got Shane Steichen there, the question Ballard should be asking is, do you see Jalen Hurts in Anthony Richardson? And if so, is that something that you're comfortable doing again? Does Will Levis have mobility? Uh, I mean, you know, I know that his consistency probably is another one that, that that's been brought into play. But what is he like outside the pocket? When he was healthy in 2021, he's as good an athlete, you know, in terms of like linear speed and acceleration as there is in this class. You know, the guy can run. I think that dealing with the toe and the foot injuries that he had for uh, for last year at Kentucky, like I said, that offense was asking him to stand in the pocket and not run as much. There wasn't as much bootlegging and getting him outside, you know, making these off-platform throws or getting him away from pressure as there was the year before. But he can run, you know, so if he's 100% good to go, well, I think everybody kind of saw the pictures that he put up on Instagram or what have you about how he's been working out to get himself back in shape. You know, I, I don't know if I have takes on how Jack the quarterback is, is or isn't supposed to be to be successful as a pro, but if he's in great shape and you can trust that and, you know, you're in an offense like Indies where you're going to allow this guy to take off you know, with Shane Steichen when it's necessary or design runs, if he can handle it. I think that Levis, the the healthiest and best version of Levis can run just as well as anybody in this class. I would say outside of Anthony Richardson, just given what we know of his top-end speed. Deontay, you, you said you have a boy or a girl? I have a boy. Okay. If I were to tell you your boy is going to sleep through the night for the rest of his childhood – but in order for that to be the case, you have to bet on one player in this draft being a Hall of Famer on offense and one player in this draft being a Hall of Famer on defense. Your answers to the offense and your answer to the defense. Defense is easy. That's Will Anderson. I'll bet my peaceful nights on Will Anderson 100% of the time. Um, offense, that's interesting because there's not like a – superior talent at wide receiver where it's like, hey, this guy can step in like a Garrett Wilson or Chris Olave and be a thousand-yard guy from right out the gate and rack up maybe enough Pro Bowls and all pros to where they can be in the conversation throughout their career. It doesn't sound like we have uh, that on the O-line either, really. Not really. I mean, you, you think about you know the trajectory for a guy like Paris Johnson and it's like, okay, I've seen guys that are 6'6 with nearly 7-foot arms and are huge and athletic. I've seen that turn into all pro guys, but they usually walk into the NFL a little bit more refined from a footwork perspective, you know, to turn into that guy. Peter Skaronsky is really, really clean in terms of his feet and everything, but he is not the physical marvel that some of the other tackles and offensive linemen we expect to become Hall of Fame talents usually are, and that is a legitimate holdup for me, regardless of how good he was at Northwestern. Um, so if I had to bank it on one guy, God, that is rough. I would have to say I, I maybe I'd bank it on B. John Robinson. Hmm. I think that I think, you know, if we're talking about just skills and athleticism, he is still, I think, the best 
non-quarterback offensive player in this class, regardless of how we feel about running back value, but he's somebody who can legitimately pass protect, maybe not to the level of Ezekiel Elliott in his athletic prime, but not far off. So he's somebody that you don't have to take off the field on third down. We know what he can do in terms of being an electric athlete, you know, in one-on-one tackle scenarios and making guys miss. So I'm very comfortable with that. He can catch the ball out of the backfield as well. And I think the beautiful thing for that, you know, if you're talking about a running back or skill position player making the Hall of Fame, it's so situation dependent. And are you going to be getting the best out of them? And because it's looking like he might be late teens to early 20s, he might land in a place that's like a Dallas. He might land in Buffalo. He could land in Cincinnati. You know, he can land in Detroit, which has this monstrous offensive line and an offense that's really built to feature a guy like Bijan Robinson is something that they've been looking for, you know, in the combination of DeAndre Shift and, and Jamal Williams last year anyways. So there's, I think there's a lot of opportunity actually this year for all of the hemming and hawing that's been done on running back value where he might land in that late first round. And it's actually at a team where we look back and was like, I think that maybe we should have taken him in the top 12 and for no other reason than we just made an offense unfairly loaded, you know, because of what they added at running back. So I, if I had to bank it on one guy, I'd rather put it on Bijan than anyone else. Deontay, great stuff, man. We got to run, get some rest, and uh, appreciate the insight. Yes. Um, and I appreciate you guys. Back to sleep. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. I go. <laughs> nine o'clock hour underway in Indianapolis. For that matter, it's nine o'clock everywhere in the Eastern Time Zone. My name is Jake Query. Kevin Bowen here as well. It's Kevin and Query, 93.5107.5, The Fan, and... Joining us now on the Payless Liquors Hotline, one whose energy and enthusiasm I feel like in the morning kind of feels like when you look outside the window this morning. Seriously. Always upbeat and ready to go. And Lynn Dunn better actually be exactly that for the Indiana Fever as general manager because they have not one, not two, not three, not four, but five picks upcoming in the WNBA draft. The first overall, the seventh overall, 13th, 17th, and 28th. So, Lynn, I will begin with this. Um, I would think that that has to be both encouraging and at the same time daunting to figure out exactly where you go with all of those picks. Got to be busy for you. Good morning, guys. How are y'all doing? We are great, (laughs) Coach. Thank you. Happy day after Easter. How about it? Is this Easter for you? Well, today's my Easter because uh, <laughs> Easter Bunny's going to come visit me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> a big old gold egg sitting there, potentially. I with- would love it. Five of them. Yeah, five of them. Five golden eggs. Now, I, we're just thrilled um, that, you know, we've got five picks in this draft. It's a strong draft. Uh, we've been preparing since probably January, uh, spending time working on uh, the prospects. And now we're ready for, you know, 7 p.m. tonight on ESPN, and let's get it started. Yeah, Jake, my my co-host here, is, you know, a huge Indy 500. Obviously, he's on the radio broadcast for it. Um, I You know, I think you guys have been pretty public in saying, like, you are in a rebuild right now. If you had to compare maybe what lap of the 200-lap uh, Indy 500 is this rebuild, are, are you guys pretty early in it? Do you feel like you're you're just a piece away? How would you characterize where you're at? Well, we're in year two of what our new coach, Christy Sides, likes to call reload. I think the rebuild scares her a little bit, but I like the idea of reloading. But we're a little bit, I believe, ahead of the schedule that I had planned for us because we had such a a good draft last year. 
We've got a new coaching staff. I'm really excited about Christy and her assistant coaches and how much emphasis they're going to put on defense and and just playing the way the Fever need to play. So I think we're a little bit ahead of schedule uh, in our three-year plan. I'm hoping this year or planning this year uh, that we'll be even more competitive than we've been ever since uh, the catchings era and that we can fight for that for that playoff spot there at the end. And, and so that's our goal this year is to be highly competitive and fight for a playoff spot. Are you in position yet to strictly draft best player available, or are there still very specific targeted needs that you go after? Yes and yes. <laughs> yes, we're trying to go early in the draft with the very best player that fits a lot of our needs, you know, that that versatile player that can defend, rebound, and score. Uh, we're not to the point where where we can just take a specialist. Now, the good news for us is we have five picks. We think we'll get a, a great pick at one. I think we're going to get a great pick at seven, and then we may steal somebody at 13. You know, some of the GMs can fall asleep at the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> not you. Not me. I've been awake all night. I'm ready. <laughs> Gee, you, know, you sound like you're awake. I will say that. Um, look, the, the conventional wisdom is, Lynn, that, that Aaliyah Boston out of South Carolina is going to be the number one overall pick. Um, what about her game has people intrigued, and what does she bring to what theoretically is going to be the fever, but whatever team she ends up with next? Well, the great thing about Aaliyah is she is a walking double-double. Uh, potentially a triple-double if she's not double and triple-teamed. The great thing we can do for her is put four shooters around her. And unfortunately, at South Carolina, they weren't able to do that. And many times she was double-teamed, triple-teamed, yet still uh, would get double-doubles. So we're looking forward to seeing what she can do with our you know, defensive three-second three uh, rule and just the fact that we can spread the floor around her. So I, I think the sky's the limit for her but we also have two other players that she'll now be paired with and kelsey mitchell and Alyssa smith so that's a great threesome there to build around so it sounds like Leah boston will be the pick then well if i pick boston okay all right, all right. i just want to clarify there uh, linda and the gm of the fever she's with us here uh on the pay less liquors hotline i want to go back to you know maybe just Leah boston the final four and what you saw with the Final Four this year. I mean, by all accounts, the TV ratings were through the roof. Obviously, the individual stars help a whole lot. What do you think this year in women's basketball at the collegiate level did for the game moving forward? I think it exploded. I don't think there's any doubt. When we saw the sold-out crowds down at IU, we saw the sold-out crowds at, at, at Iowa, and I have to give kudos to the Big Ten. They've done a superior job of selling women's basketball and then to go to the final four and it just be so entertaining. And of course that, that, that's a big, uh, thanks to Kim Mulkey and she's an entertainer and Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark. And we've just got these stars that can not only play, but they can entertain. I don't know how much of a social media person you, you are coach, but what did you make of the Angel Reese, Caitlin Clark back and forth and the type of national attention it received? Well, I thought it was a good way to sell and get more NILs. I think that's what it's all about now. The, the players have the opportunity to get additional money if they're visible and if they're getting lots of hits on social media. So there's no telling how much more NIL money they got from just having a – it kind of looked like a fake little confrontation. <laughs> 
And you know, it's interesting. Someone else made this point on social media, so I don't want to claim it as my own, But I, and I apologize, I don't know the name, but it was a great point. And that was, while I realize that there are going to be those, Lynn Dunn, that are going to look at that and say, you know, here you have these two girls that are, you know, whatever. It's Is it sportsmanship? Is it not? Whatever else. The reality is, doesn't it say something about the growth of the women's game that you have national sports shows talking about and debating the actions of women's basketball? I, no press is is bad press necessarily, but but doesn't that speak volumes about where women's sports are now that we're able to have totally seemingly innocuous debates about the sportsmanship of it absolutely absolutely no doubt about it when we when we logged 9.9 million viewers for the uh championship game last sunday it sent a message that women's basketball is serious and i think uh i think when uh, iowa got back and put their 23-24 season tickets on sale uh they sold 7,000 they had to stop selling them and so that's how exciting and how much interest there is in women's basketball. I think it's going to carry over to the WNBA. I think we're going to we're going to bounce right off of the, the momentum that the the, the uh, college championship had uh, uh, in Dallas. This is going to sound. I, I hope what I'm trying to ask here makes sense. Uh, Lynn Dunn, by the way, the Fever general manager is our guest on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Fevers with picks one seven, thirteen, seventeen, and twenty eight in the WNBA draft. That's 25, the, not 28. Oh, 25. 25. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, okay. The, the evolution of the women's game, to me, seems like, you know, it really in the last three or four years we have started to see in the women's game what we've seen in the men's game, and that is moving towards more and more of like positionless basketball. You know, women that can play multiple positions or score or do things from various areas. It seems to me like that really has accelerated in the last couple of years as girls have you know begun to play more and more in year round and et cetera. Are, are we in a time period where we could see on a WNBA roster veteran players who were kind of more from an older player style having to mesh with younger players that are bringing the more accelerated women's game with them? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Yes, it really does, and I think you're right. I think we're seeing uh, positionless basketball. We're seeing a Caitlin Clark that can play the one, two, three. She can play all three positions. She's a point forward. You know, we're seeing fives that can play the four. We're seeing fours that can play the three. We're spreading the floor. We're seeing four out or five out, and that's because their skills have improved. They've been playing now, and thanks to Title Nine. They've been playing now since they were in the third grade. They've had an opportunity to play on bitty teams, uh, middle school teams, junior high, high school. And so their skills um, have really, really increased. They're bigger, they're stronger, they're faster, and they're just better. Curious what you thought about um, the season Grace Berger had down down in Bloomington and how she projects to the next level. I thought she had a great season, and we mentioned versatility and positionless potential. Uh, The great thing about Grace is she can play the one, the two, and the three. She's six foot. She's big. She's strong. She's physical, and uh, that's a big adjustment when you go to the next level, the physicality of the league. Everything's faster and everything's more physical, and and she she is – 
a great leader. She's a floor leader. She, you know, she leads on the court and she leads off the court. A lot of positives about Grace Berger. Lynn, last one for me. And again, Lynn Dunn, busy now. As she said earlier, she's got some Easter eggs. She's hoping to open up here a little bit later today. At 7 o'clock, the 2023 WNBA draft gets underway. Do you think they should change the age limit at all when, when it comes from you know people leaving college going to the uh, WNBA? Because right now, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's 23 if I'm not 23 years old. Yeah, it's a real interesting dynamic that the league initially said, okay, you couldn't come out until you graduated or at least spent four years in college, or if you were over, if you were a foreigner, you had to be, you know, 22, 23. I'm surprised that a underclassman has not challenged that in, in court, that they haven't just, you know, filed a lawsuit, but nobody has. They've just pretty much followed those guidelines. But I think as the sport continues to grow, it's just a matter of time to one of these juniors uh, that's fantastic and that's a little bit ahead of everybody else is tired of school and, you know, and they and they file some type of a lawsuit. I think it may happen in the future. If that were the case this year and Caitlin Clark was available, would it cause you sleepless nights of figuring out what to do? I don't even want to think about it. I'm not <laughs> sleeping now. I can't even imagine what it would be like if she was in. The good news is I think she'll be in next year. Even though she has an extra COVID year, I think Caitlin will have a fantastic senior year and say, I'm ready to go play with the big girls. I'm ready to I'm ready to test my skills against the best. Coach, have fun tonight. I, I don't even know if I need to say that, but I can only imagine what your emotions are with, again, all of the quality picks that you do have, quantity and quality. It's got to be an awesome night to continue this rebuild. So enjoy it, and uh, it sounds like we might have the number one pick on this show tomorrow morning. So looking forward to that. Thank you so much. And I just want to say one thing. I know the Pacers didn't get in the playoffs, but I thought they had a super season. Everybody's excited about them. They got better. They were competitive. I love their young players. So let's let's keep pulling for the Pacers because I think this time next year they may very well be in the playoffs. I would agree. Thank you, Coach. You're welcome. Thank you.